Okay, today my guest is Professor Robert Weiner. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Robert as a person. Professor Weiner is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip uh, many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Robert Weiner is the deputy director of the Master of Science programs in IB and in government contracts, and is a faculty director of the business school Cyber. He is affiliated with the Elliott School of International Affairs, Institute for International Economic Policy, Institute for Middle East Studies, Institute for Security and uh, Conflict Studies, the Sigur Center for Asian Studies. He is also the senior advisor to the Brettel Group. He has been a research fellow in the International Energy Program at the Kennedy School of Government and consulted Amaco, Mobil, Philips, Texaco, New York Mercantile Exchange, U.S. Department of Energy and the U.S. International Trade Commission, the Harvard Institute for International Development and the World Bank. He testified before the U.S. Congress and the U.K. government, U.K. Parliament, and he served as an eminent person on commodities for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ogun. I really appreciate it. Perfect. So uh, first, uh, <clears throat> what did you want to become when you were a child? So you know what? I, I, never, I was a math nerd, and I wanted to become a statistician, perhaps not as exciting as <laughs> other people, but I love numbers. And I've always been an empiricist. And in some ways, I think I'm probably not too different from how I was when I was a child. <laughs> and how did you choose academia? How did you uh, get into uh, this field? Yeah, so, so my father was a foreign service officer, a diplomat for the U.S. State Department, uh, and I grew up abroad some, and, uh, and then he left the State Department and then went into academia, and he was an administrator. He didn't have a doctorate, and it looked to me like he enjoyed that a lot more. And so I think I got that from my father that academia was an interesting thing to do. And I always considered it as somewhat sheltered work for people like me who might have some challenges working with other people in the real world. <laughs> uh, uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Uh, so, so I'm a, a bird watcher. And if you look at my CV and the conferences that I've gone to, um, I've often chosen conferences uh, based on their location, not merely on their academic content. And for example, the Academy of International Business, I don't go every year, but um, I recall a number of years ago, it was in Banff in Alberta. And I can proudly report that I not only saw a lot of birds there, but I saw a lynx, a North American wildcat from the bus as we were going on the AIB tour. And I pointed it out to other AIB members, wow, there's a lynx, which is like a small, uh, a small version of a mountain lion. And not many people on the bus were interested, but I was interested. <laughs> is that the one with the pointy uh, yes, ears? Yes, the one with, with the... the pointy ears, exactly right, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh... Alternative path, the second best alternative. If you stopped doing what you're doing today, or if you can do it all over again, what would you do? What's you the know, second I, best? I path? think that if I were to do it again, I'd go back to my childhood dream of being a statistician. And I don't know what sort of uh, venue I would be in, but 
but dealing with numbers and statistics, that's what I liked when I was a child. I never wanted to be a tram driver or a pilot. I wanted to be a statistician in some ways. If I weren't an IB professor, I think I would like to be a statistician and deal with numbers. Do you keep record? Do you, do you look at these numbers and everything like in uh, baseball games? Do you follow those stats? Uh, some, some I do. I think baseball has become a sport in which there are a lot of statistics that may not be very useful, but it just keeps people busy. Um, and not all statistics are useful. And that's one of the big questions in statistics is what type of statistics should you collect and calculate? And how are those related to your objectives? And I think in baseball, um, it's not clear to me that all the new statistics that are being used are actually effective. Hmm. Sure. Sure. Regrets in life. Do you have any regrets in life? Yeah. So, um, you know, in some in some ways, I think I became a professor because I was not a very social person, and I would look for a job in which most of what you do you do either by yourself or maybe one or two other people. And the main, the main uh, jobs a professor of teaching and research are sort of solitary. And I think that if I had to do over again, I would try to be a little bit more outgoing and work with other people more. Um, and it's just, in some ways, being a professor is easy because I don't have to talk to people who I don't already know. Hmm. Sure. Sure. What are you most proud of? So I think I'm most I think I'm most proud of the students that I've educated over the years and helping them get the skills and especially the self-confidence um, to go out into the world and 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 you know make a contribution to society to society in other ways. I've been teaching for more than 25 years in Washington, DC, and our business school is a bit different from other business schools because we're in a capital. Uh, of the United States, a lot of our graduates go into the public sector or the nonprofit sector, um, and where the skills that they get in the business school are just as valid as they would be in private business. Um, and in, in some sense, um, I'm, I'm proud that I've given people skills who are trying to do public service as well as, as work in the private sector. And that's one benefit of being in Washington is that the line between the public sector and the private sector uh, is not so sharp. And then we have people, alumni who come back to talk to us and some of them talk about how their business school skills actually serve them uh, in international organizations or governments or NGOs or things like that. And I think that in that way, um, we've made a different type of contribution than in a typical business school in which the government is something that's over there in another corner. Or, or far away. And in any country, people tend to blame uh, people in the capital for their problems. Um, and I think in some ways it's very unrealistic. Um, one of my observations about life from being in this profession a long time is there are huge selection effects. And the way people view the world often depends on what they're selecting on. So for example, people often blame Washington for America's problems. Um, and the most base, a, 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 few, a few minutes of reflection will reveal that you send the most difficult problems to politicians. Whatever country you're in, 
If you and your neighbor can settle a dispute or a disagreement privately, you don't need the government. The government is there to tax or regulate or to provide social services when the private sector can't or when private arrangements don't work. If you send a group of people the most difficult social problems, you shouldn't be surprised that they struggle to solve them. That's a selection effect. And blaming politicians, whether you're blaming the politicians in Washington, D.C., uh, or in Ankara, for that matter, um, it ignores the fact that the problems that they are asked to address are not a random subsample of the problems in society. They're the problems that society has trouble with. And so the idea that the government is bad uh, and is hurting society, it's clearly true in some countries, but the idea that that's true in general, which seems to be pervasive in business school, is foolish because it uh, ignores the big selection effects. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is having educated people who go into business who deal with government and people who go into government who deal with business as well as NGOs trying to get a better sense of each other. I teach a course called Business and the State in which there is a mixture of MBA students and students from other business programs with uh, students who are studying public administration and international affairs. Um, and so they get to work with each other and they can see that there are different objectives and different ways of thinking about the world and hopefully get working together on a project or a homework assignment is an effective mouse race that will lead to better results in the rat race. And so in some sense, I've educated many people over the years and this is what I'm most proud of. Does it make a difference? Well, Ilga, I think in our profession, in terms of educating people, we almost never know whether it makes a difference because of the fact that we can't, ours is not an experimental science. We can't rerun the world, have them not go to business school and see how they would have turned out otherwise. And so I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the results, but it's possible that the results could have happened anyway, even if I hadn't been there. True, I mean, uh, yes, I see your point, but how different are these students uh, and how different is the pedagogy uh, in, uh, in your school? So that's, that's a very good question. I'm trained as an economist and the pedagogy in economics is very welfare focused. In some sense, most economics articles are about policies and whether it's regulation or taxation, um, about how to make the world a better place from an economist's point of view, from social welfare, how to make the pie as big as possible. And there are a lot of legitimate criticisms about e econo economics and economists that there are other things important in life besides how big the pie is. But if you're looking at policies and trying to understand what should host governments do, for example, with dealing with multinationals in order to make the welfare of their citizens as large as possible, that's a different pedagogy, it's a different way of thinking than you'd have in management where the audience is the manager rather than the policymaker. I think one of the things that I didn't realize when I went from economics to a business school is how different the underlying objective is. I was a professor, I started out as a standard economics professor in an economics department in the 1980s when economics was only interested in theory. I was interested in the real world I kind of got kicked out, of, kicked out of the economics profession some because I was looking for motivation from the real world 
trying to understand the world rather than trying to improve economic theory, which was the focus in the 1980s. Um, and so in some sense, although economics and management look very similar, the underlying pedagogy and objective is different. And if you're, if there's an article in our article about what's the best uh, international trade policy as regards tariffs or quotas, that's really a, addressing a question that's of interest to economists and probably less relevant or not relevant to management simply because the audience for that kind of article, the practitioner audience is a policymaker rather than a manager. Robert, let's talk about some, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, talk about some research. Um, what are, <clears throat> in your opinion, what are the omitted variables or omitted contexts? Omitted yeah, things? So, so I think, yeah. So I think one of the contexts that we don't deal with enough is the political context. And it's not, and that's both. And I, I think in general, IB scholars think they know a lot more about political science than they actually do. Um, I've actually, I've submitted articles to political science journals, not successfully, alas. I've been to political science conferences. And in fact, our basic, the way we treat politics but in geopolitics is by treating it as sort of a right-hand side variable or a driver of our theories rather than something in which the politicians have objectives. So I'm particularly interested in political risk. The way we often try to assess political risk is by various measures. And these measures, there are some measures um, of political stability. There is the um, Vit Hennish's measure of political constraints. Um, there are some measures of, of uh, social stability but we treat them as variables or parameters. The way political science treats them is to ask, all right, in the host country, the people making decisions about how to treat multinationals, they have objectives. How do we figure out what their objectives are? What affects their objectives? They're players. IB doesn't treat them as players. They treat them as exogenous variables. And so, and, and it's understandable, our, our focus is on the multinational, but treating the political sphere as an exogenous variable um, is another way of saying we don't treat political actors as, uh, we don't treat political actors as people or institutions with objectives. And I think that's a big, um, a big area for potential work in IB, as well as what you might consider in omitted contexts. That's true especially for domestic politics. We, I know you work some on geopolitics um, and I have also, but there are also domestic politics. And so one of the questions, for example, is, is when might a host country politician actually welcome uh, multinationals, even if people in the country are suspicious of multinational companies, for example, if they're in a country that doesn't get along well with the home country, even if the country itself may not be enthusiastic about multinationals, the politician who's in charge of the decision whether to offer special terms for multinationals to treat multinationals well or badly, that person might benefit politically by saying, we brought a multinational to our province or our city and created jobs. 
And that might help the politician either stay in power or increase its power. And it doesn't really matter whether the politician is in a country with electoral competition, a democracy, or the politician is in a dictatorship. Even dictators have to worry about popular opinion. And so, and so if you think of if you think of politics not as a parameter that we should measure better or an independent variable that we should measure better to look to see whether our theories about the relationship between politics or geopolitics and say multinational investment to see whether they're supported by data, but to actually understand that it, they're, not in, they're not exogenous. They depend on other factors. And then one question is, well, what factors um, determine whether a, a, uh, the host country government is going to treat multinationals well or badly, that might depend on a bunch of political factors that have been looked at by political scientists. So I think in some ways, our, in IB, our, although we claim that we take politics into account, our, our, um, our view of politics is a very thin and perhaps ghostly one, rather than considering that politicians' objectives are in some ways not so different from asking the question, what's the objective of the multinational corporation? Sure. Uh, I mean, you touched on a couple of interesting things. You talked about uh, actually endogeneity and sample selection issues, and you understand very well, thank you. Uh, you also talked about Hanish's uh, new approach. Uh, actually, I find, uh, it's oversimplified, it's oversimplification of what's real. He talked about geoquant, uh, geoquant uh, to give a number, one number to, to talk about the uh, country riskiness. So US is 18, uh, Egypt is 35, so 35 is bigger, so it is more risky. That is ridiculously oversimplification. That is not uh, the correct approach. Uh, but you, you also talked about something which is unique, um, uh, globalization and MNC. The, the, the more we talked about globalization, actually people uh, forgot about the role of the government uh, and the state. Uh, and they were almost isolated uh, as if uh, they didn't exist uh, for a very long time. So uh, your points are very well taken. Uh, is this the new, uh, the direction that people are going to be taking in the field? Is it the evolution of the field towards uh, either no government, no state versus too much government, too much state? Uh, what's the, where are we headed to? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I have to say, I'm, I'm very skeptical because if you ask any IB scholar, where is the field going? He or she is going to choose the area that he or she works in himself or herself, right? Because it's self-interest. And so it's it's really going to ask, what, where do I hope uh, IB scholarship is going? I think if we're going to be realistic and ask where IB scholarship is going the next five or 10 years, we should imagine ourselves five or 10 years ago and asking, could we have predicted where the world is now? And I think the answer is no. Um, nobody could have predicted. There are always, if you look, Every night, somebody in the world dreams that the world is going to end. So one night, the world actually does end, and that person's considered a genius. And so for sure, five or 10 years ago, there are some people who predicted the rise of populism 
and hostility towards globalization, because if you look hard enough, you can see any prediction. But the general consensus was that the world would look more or less now as it had been in the past. And in fact, it looks very different. It's another way of saying things are much more unpredictable than scholars think. And so I think if one were, were to step back and give an honest answer, it's impossible to say where IB scholarship will be in five or 10 years, because it's impossible to say where the world would be in five or 10 years. I think it'd be better, it's better to talk about, because I'm interested in political risk in terms of the risks to IB scholarship. And I think that the biggest risk to IB scholarship is that the trend, the, think of the trend towards populism and strongmen leaders around the world, whether you're talking about those leaders in New Delhi or Washington or Ankara or Mexico City uh, or Beijing. And you say, all right, the, the rise of populism makes it more interesting for IB scholars. In some ways, the worst world for IB scholars is the world is perfectly connected and going between, uh, between say Washington and Mexico City is no different than going between Washington and Miami. Um, that's a world that maybe functioned very well, but it doesn't give IB scholars much to do. So the rise of populism and nationalism and anti-globalization makes our life more interesting. So as scholars, we just say, all right, um, this may not be good for the world, but it's good for us. I actually don't think it's good for us because there are fewer students interested in international. And if you just look at the job market, we've been trying to hire uh, professors in IB for on and off for many years. There are many fewer students coming out with focus in IB because students are more interested in domestic issues. And in the United States, for example, questions of uh, gender, questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, these are questions that are very important for society, but they're domestic issues. And if you just try to dump these issues into IB, the first thing you have to realize is that these issues are very different in meaning once you cross borders. And what's diversity, what's equity, what's inclusion, it's very different on one side of the world than the other, so different that it may not be a useful topic for IB at all. And in fact, if society has, been, has moved more into dealing with domestic problems as has happened in so many countries, I think there's a reasonable risk that IB will cease to become an important field. Um, it may be important conceptually, but not important in the sense that students won't want to take IB courses. Um, and it will be hard to find the next generation of professors interested in IB because students who are working on their dissertations want to work on things that are socially important. So they're working on things like diversity, equity, and inclusion that in my view, do not have a meaningful place in IB because they really mean very different things in different countries. So I think there's a big, the biggest risk to IB scholarship is that it will disappear. And this doesn't mean that it will become a, a, a black hole. It was more likely than anything else that IB will simply be a subfield in strategy um, in the same way that, for example, entrepreneurship is now. And that there will be some people in strategy who say, all right, within strategy, my focus is on IB as opposed to small business or entrepreneurship. And 
I'm afraid that a lot of people who you've interviewed for your series, which I think is tremendously valuable, have a very self-congratulatory view. They think, oh, I've done a great job. The field has done a great job. We have a bright future. I don't think the field has a bright future. Um, it's easy to be wrong because of the high level of uncertainty, but even now, IB has become more and more a subfield of strategy, much more so than when I entered IB in the 1990s from economics. Um, and maybe that's simply the way of the world, that international issues are of less interest to students and of less interest to society generally when most societies are coping with domestic issues. True. There's a, a almost exuberance of domestic issue uh, introduction into the daily agenda, right? Yeah, this is a major issue. Who was the most influential person uh, for your academic uh, development? Oh, so that's, that's a very good question. So I come from economics as a tradition. My economics degree is half in the economics department at Harvard and half at the Harvard Business School. So the people who influence me the most are people who sort of take an economics perspective on international issues. So when I was a graduate student, uh, the head of our graduate program was Lou Wells, uh, who uh, made many contributions to IB in the early days. And another person who I knew well was Ray Vernon. Um, and so these are, and, and Richard Caves. These are people who are basically either economists or heavily influenced by the economics tradition who have who turned their attention to IB. It's a very, it's very focused on what nowadays IB scholars might call the macro environment, the environment in which multinationals function. These days, IB has become much more micro and inward looking. And in some sense, the IB train has gone down a track in which I'm less connected into what goes on now. Things like knowledge flows within the firm or management of expatriates. My, the tradition that I grew up in was much more an economics tradition. And um, in some sense, my focus in IB on political risk is much more part of the economics tradition this tradition has now been adopted by political science. So I'm much more, in some sense, I'm more comfortable um, in an economics or political science journal uh, reading and writing for it than I would be for some of the management journals in which they use ideas for management scholarships that are more micro in which I really uh, don't know anything about. This, uh, this sort of focus and influence is heightened by, by the location of our, our school and our department. We have one of, the, one of the few freestanding IB departments in the United States and one of the oldest focuses on IB. And that's, again, it's a big selection issue. We're right next to, or only a few hundred meters away from the IMF, the World Bank, the US Central Bank called the Fed, um, and the embassies. And these are all macro stuff. We don't have much actual international business in the sense of operations in Washington, DC. So we don't, and so our focus is very macro. We don't, we have a fairly sizable department. We have about 15 faculty, full-time faculty members just doing IB in addition to a strategy department, in addition to a management department. The management department does micro and the strategy department does the macro domestic. 
On the international side, we do the macro and nobody does the micro. And we tell people, if you're interested, PhD students, if you're interested in micro stuff, uh, we're not a very good match for you. And so we don't have colleagues who do micro. I don't do much. My influence for people who seem to me the giants of the field are people who are in the macro area. I once at an AIB conference many years ago, I heard somebody talking about sort of the historical background for the more management micro stuff in IB and talking about somebody, a researcher whose name I don't remember who was doing this stuff in the early days. And that person said, I'm going to, I'm going to open, your eye, open the eyes of all the, all the people in the room who think that the IB field started with Stephen Heimer. And I wanted to raise my hand and say, me, me, me. I think the IB field did start with Stephen Heimer because Stephen Heimer is an economist and that's what I'm interested in. So I don't pretend to be a man for all seasons. My influences have been on the macro side, the environment. And in some sense, I feel a little bit at sea as the profession has transitioned to having much more uh, emphasis on the micro. One of the reasons I like your work, especially your work with Odin, uh, is because you're definitely, I put your, I put your in the sort of the macro box. Thank you. My training is economics, and uh, Oded is a sociologist. So obviously, our approach is uh, coming from a macro traditions. But what you're saying is quite interesting because uh, strategy when they uh, the the focus was on the firm, and all of a sudden uh, there's new introduction of micro foundations, which is psychology uh, seeping in, which is uh, naturally helpful. Uh, same thing tried, uh, not tried, but actually it happened in IB. And yes, there's too much uh, some, for some people, but there's so uh, too much focus on the micro aspects, which again, it distracts uh, the macro side, uh, the, the context. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there, there's not going to be a settlement of, uh, of this thing anytime soon, for sure. But uh, what's the advice for junior faculty and uh, maybe PhD students? What to do, what not to do in the field who are entering the uh, IB area? Yeah, so, so in some sense, um, even though it's a lamentation for me that IB seems to have receded, PhD students need to get a job and I have to put their welfare before my own. So what I'd say to PhD students is make sure that you're not just doing IB, that what you're doing can be sold to a management audience or a strategy audience or an economic audience. And then you can look for jobs in IB, but those jobs are likely to be scarcer in the future than they have been in the past. So you can also say, I'm gonna look for a job in teaching strategy. And I can, by the way, I can teach the one IB class that you still have because there's less interest in IB. And I think that describes a lot of the, the students who have been on the market in recent years. It's made it harder for us as an IB department to recruit them because these people have, have been told by their advisors, you should be a strategy person with IB as a subfield. Many of them don't wanna teach just in an IB department because they've been teaching strategy as a doctoral student or, or very interested in strategy. So it might be bad for our department, but it's better for PhD students to consider IB to be a skill or a capability rather than their main field, simply because, um, because whatever happens in the world, 
intellectually, it seems that IB has become part of strategy. And if they can if they can sell themselves as a strategy scholar with a focus on IB or an interest in IB, I think they'll have many more opportunities and better opportunities than they would if they presented themselves as an IB scholar. It's sad for me to say that, but I think that the this is a change in the world. You can even see at AIB conferences, there are fewer people than there were in the past. And, um, and it's just fields go up and down. And my general sense is that if you're a scholar starting out now, you could, should focus on fields that are more growth fields. It'll be easier to get it, to find a job, easier to get ahead. Don't go into a sunset industry. Go into strategy or management or economics or whatever whatever your your predilection is, and do international as a way to give yourself um, another capability. So you could say, not only can I do strategy, but I'm also can do international. So that the IB classes that you still teach in your university, I can teach them. Thank you. Last question. What's the question I should have asked you about heavens? Well, I think I think the the question. Uh, I think one of the questions is that we haven't talked about is the role of theory. And one of the things one of the one of the things that I've found the most challenging about IB as a field is the focus on trying to have better theories about IB rather than theories about phenomena. IB claims that it's a phenomena-driven field, but it's not, at least compared to social science like economics and political science. And so let me give you an example, because I'm, I think in IB, we often talk an abstraction and a concrete example is, is better for students and for colleagues and scholars to illustrate idea. One of the big phenomena that have occurred <clears throat> over the last 10 or 15 years is the rise of emerging market multinationals multinationals from countries like China, India, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, multinationals that, that, um, that don't fit into the traditional theories in IB about why firms go abroad. And so you might ask yourself a question, might ask yourself a question, um, what, why do these firms go abroad from these countries? And, and if you were taking an economics mindset, which, which is the way I was trained, you try to have an understanding theory about why, why firms from countries with say weak institutions would go abroad. However, in IB, the main interest in emerging market multinationals seems to be about what they can tell us about our existing theories about the multinational. Do we need a new theory for emerging market multinationals, or what can it tell us about the transaction cost theory or the, um, the um, resource-based view of the firm or internalization? Trying So it's a, we're so introspective that we're more interested in our own theories rather than trying to understand why firms from emerging markets started to go abroad 10 or 15 years ago and not, for example, earlier and not later. That's something that our theories aren't interested in. Our theories are, so it's almost as if we are interested in emerging market multinationals, not because we're trying to understand the, the, um, the phenomenon of outward FDI from emerging markets, but because we're more interested in getting, holding up a mirror to ourselves and getting a better insight 
into our own theories and ask them, how do our theories have to work? So to me, this is, this is very introspective and we have a lot of theories. And I'm afraid that a lot of our theories are not really what an economist would call a theory. There are different opinions about the world just grouped under different names. And if you look some of, for example, some of our most famous theories, think of the internalization theory, the transaction cost theory, the resource-based view of the firm. From an economist's point of view, those are all the same theory. Putting different labels on them, they might have slightly different emphases. Putting different labels on these theories doesn't make them into different theories. There's a theory. One thing about economics is there are hypotheses but there is basically one underlying theory in economics, which is called neoclassical economics, which is how, that basically firms and consumers act in their own self-interest. And then that then leads to hypotheses, for example, about the transaction costs. In IB, anytime anybody has some new insight, they call it a theory. So we end up with a bunch of theories that may be the same theory or virtually the same theory. And we are not really interested in which theory is true. We almost never have a test to see whether the theory actually describes the world or not. I think that's one of the biggest frustrations that I, I've had. Even, even in the in, in Jibs, Jibs has has under the last several editors has made great strides in becoming a very interesting journal in terms of setup. But for example, the point counterpoint. Um, which is which is a great idea. People arguing different sides of the question. In fact, um, the point counterpoint um, is not really disagreements. And in preparation for our visit today, I read your point, re very recent point counterpoint that you did about where IB research should be going, in which I read your point and then the counterpoint of, I believe some European IB scholars, they start out by saying, oh, we agree with professor Arakan, and here's some more thoughts. It would be nice if we actually had point counterpoint in which people disagree with each other so that people could get more insight into which of these theories actually, actually better describes the world. In, in economics, we have horse races. We have uh, hypotheses in which one hypothesis says A causes B and the other hypothesis says, says A does not cause B. And we run statistical tests with a horse race and one theory wins and the other loses. In IB, we don't do that. We have a bunch of theories as far as I can see are not clearly distinguishable from each other. And the focus on theory in IB um, at the expense of data means I don't think we understand the world better than we used to. We have a much richer set of theories, but it's not clear that these theories are any more powerful than past theories or are simply larger number of theories basically saying the same thing or similar. In 2021 uh, and 22, I organized seven debates and uh, these are in person, uh, excuse me, online, uh, two people on both sides of, uh, of an argument type of debates. And uh, I tried uh, with my colleague and co-author Asla, Asla Rikami, we tried uh, uh, different formats. We tried Lincoln Douglas, we tried platform, we tried uh, more, uh, what is that thing called? Uh, uh, 
there are three types of uh, philosophical debates. We tried different rules, different formats. The idea is to uh, take the gloves off, right? How do we uh, disagree? How do we bring discourse to the uh, to the uh, field? And uh, maybe uh, our colleagues are very nice. <laughs> they are very nice, and they would like to uh, uh, agree more. But uh, there is much to learn from disagreements and. Uh, from this perspective, uh, these debates, which we are going to continue in the next uh, two years um, for the two sides of the same point, uh, not, in, not doing point versus counterpoint with two separate papers, but within one paper, how can you basically make the, the disagreements uh, be fleshed out? Uh, let's see how it turns out. Uh, and we're still working on these uh, new formats now. Uh, have but, have, they, have you gotten real debate in which people saying that the other side was was wrong about something? You can do it in a polite way. It doesn't. This is not personal. This is this is disagreements about ideas, not disagreements about I like you or I don't like. How, how successful have you been in getting a real debate where people said no, that's wrong? Uh, the Barneyantes were on one side, and uh, Buckley and Alain Alain Merbeke. We're on the other side. Do we need a new theory of the firm? So uh, that was a very uh, well done, executed debate, and they did start getting to it. And maybe we can do in time uh, another version of it uh, uh, next year uh, for, for this new season. Uh, I'm uh, putting together another debate, uh, which is going to be, I think, at least as big as that one uh, on uh, sanctions and whether uh, firms should be part of sanctions like governments, whether firms should act like governments, because a sanction is an act of war and firms are basically taking sides now. Firms are saying, uh, you know, I'm doing this thing in Russia, I'm doing this thing in this country, but firms are not supposed to do that. Uh, that is not taught in econ uh, that, uh, that way. In political science, uh, sanctions are almost dedicated to uh, states. Uh, states do sanctions. And Mearsheim's uh, power politics or realism theory basically basically talks about uh, this one. So there is now uh, going to be a new debate on, uh, on this one. Um, the thing is, uh, over time, people tend to agree. And maybe they will like to have a closure of uh, agreement. Uh, nothing wrong with it. It's just, uh, again, in a courteous way, people should be able to disagree and bring discourse to the field. Uh, when Lincoln and Douglas had this uh, debate about politics in America early on, uh, they changed history. They changed, they made history, basically. Lincoln-Douglas debate style. Uh, not appealing to many, and yet it is very powerful. Uh, people can disagree, uh, and they should. Uh, uh, Robert, thank you so much for your uh, time. I learned a lot. I enjoyed this interview a lot. 
uh, I look forward to interacting with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elgin. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate the investment that you've made in, in doing all of these. And I hope that the profession is acknowledging this in some ways. Um, and uh, it's a great service to profession. I've looked at a few of them and it has to be served. And I appreciate your sacrifice because this is not in my university. Uh, if I did this, my dean would say, you know, how come you're not spending more on time on your teaching or whatever? Um, so I really- That's exactly what my dean is saying. <laughs> yes, I appreciate your service to profession. How long, how long does it take before the, do you edit the uh, transcript or how long does it take before it's visible? Uh, I don't do editing. The interviews are posted uh, as they are recorded uh, in the order of their recording. Uh, and AIB releases two videos uh, every week uh, oh. on a full season. Okay, and so should I, just, should I just keep my eyes, uh, eyes? How long does it typically take if in terms of my looking at the AIB website? Uh, this will probably be posted in four weeks. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Bye. Good. Thank you so much, Logan. Take care.